So Nick, I've noticed in my clinic that for a lot of the women that come and see me, I am their only doctor. Yeah, you know, and I think one of the hardest things about that, Faye, is that it's really hard as an OBGYN just not having been in the primary care sphere for a couple of years now to know where to reach out and look for, like, what do I do to do this screening or that screening? Yeah, exactly. Like, I completely have forgotten when to screen people for, you know, their lipid panel, when to get their A1C, when do they get the colonoscopies. But the good thing is this is all there on the OBG Project. If you head on over to the OBG Project's website, they have a special tab entitled Primary Care that actually has a lot of updates regarding things like treating type 2 diabetes, screening for things like abdominal aortic aneurysm and colonoscopy, lipid therapies, all the stuff that was really, really useful to you once upon a time and you probably forgot, but maybe you need once again. And while I still tell all my patients that they definitely need a primary care doctor and not just an OBGYN, this way at least you're able to kind of hold them over until they do find that PCP. The OBG Project has a product called OBG First that's free for chief residents for one whole year. If you head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar and you as a chief resident can get access to all of their stuff for absolutely free. But even if you're not a chief resident, check out the OBG Project look at the resources they have on the website, and get better in your clinic. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. Coffee. have with us Dr. David Edmondson. Dr. Edmondson is the medical director of the lymphedema program for the Women and Infants program in women's oncology. He's the chairman of the cancer committee and also associate professor of surgery and OBGYN at the Warren Albert School of Medicine of Brown University. And today he is joining us to talk about uh, managing the breast lump and also what we as OBGYNs should know uh, before referring patients to a breast surgeon such as himself. So thank you so much for taking time to join us uh, on the podcast today, Dr. Edmondson. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about breast lumps and how to work them up. We're going to talk about mammograms and radiographic criteria. Um, we're going to talk about management of those breast lumps. And we'll also talk a little bit more about kind of radiology and other interesting follow-up items. So Dr. Edmondson, I guess to start, how do you work up a lump? Without question for women under the age of 30, starting with an ultrasound is usually the best place to go simply because statistically these masses are likely going to be a benign. Mammograms are going to be of limited utility given the density of the breast tissue. So breast density is going to limit interpretation of a mammogram. And um, younger than the age of 30, without question, you want to try to limit the amount of radiation exposure because that's when the breast tissue is most sensitive to that radiation. So somebody under the age of 30, I would say start with an ultrasound and go from there. If they're 35 or over, definitely do bilateral mammogram and an ultrasound. That gives us a baseline. The other-sided mammogram gives the radiologist a good comparison to see what, uh, whether or not there's an asymmetry between the two sides. And then again, if it's something palpable, ultrasound is uh, absolute, an absolute because that's going to be your highest yield imaging test to sort out 
what exactly is there and whether or not it requires any type of intervention. Uh, between the ages of 30 and 35, there is a bit of a gray area, and a lot of it has to do with how it feels. Does it feel suspicious? Does the patient have any significant risk factors for... Uh, breast cancer based on family history, based on personal history, and you can use your own judgment in that in that gray area as to whether or not to add a mammogram to that particular patient population. Um, one thing that you know we get on our reports, Dr. Edmondson, is the BIRAD scoring system, and our radiologists are obviously very lovely, and they'll say you know BIRADS one, like negative, or like BIRADS six, known malignancy. Um, but can you just go over that again for us, and how the radiologists like come up with that scoring system for yes. what they see? So the BIRAD system is obviously a means of communication, as you pointed out, between the radiologists and all the other practitioners that are ordering these imaging studies. And there are statistics that are behind those uh, numerical values that are given, and I'll go through those. Technically, the BIRAD system goes from zero to six, and we'll just go up the ladder. So BIRAD zero means they're seeing something that looks abnormal or something they're not quite sure about and they need to have some additional imaging done. So that means that we're seeing something, we need to do some additional imaging. Sometimes it's just ultrasound, sometimes it's mammogram and ultrasound, sometimes it's just mammogram, depending upon the specific imaging finding. BIRADS-1 is a completely benign, normal-appearing mammogram. There are no things that they're seeing that look at all suspicious, and that's about a 99.9% chance that what they're seeing is radiographically benign. When they give it a BIRADS-2 rating, uh, there's a couple different things that can account for why it's not a 1. Sometimes it's something that's already been worked up, such as a cyst, and they've done previous imaging demonstrating a, a finding, but it's been shown to be a benign finding. Sometimes they've had prior surgery, and so there's some scar tissue related to that prior surgery, and they're seeing that, and that's stable and not changing, and so that would also get a BIRADS-2. And again, that goes along with about a 99 or so percent chance of what they're seeing is benign. And basically continue with, for both of those, continue with annual screening or whatever the usual screening recommendation is for that particular patient. BIRADS-3 means that they're seeing something there. They're pretty sure that it's benign. Sometimes it's uh, calcifications, um, something that has an appearance that um, there's certain types of calcifications that have a fairly benign appearance. Uh, the most notorious one is an atrophic fibroadenoma, which has the classic popcorn calcification. Um, sometimes we'll see something similar to that, and they'll say, we're pretty sure it's benign, repeat imaging in six months. And that goes along with the 98% chance that what they're seeing is radiographically or is, would be proven to be uh, benign. A lot of patients do become concerned over a six-month follow-up. However, Generally speaking, if you look at the worst case scenario, breast cancers in general are very slow growing. So to even see a change, oftentimes you need at least six months to even be able to detect that change on imaging. So we try to reassure patients that there's no harm done in waiting six months. BIRADS-4 means that they are seeing something there. It looks abnormal. Uh, they have a very low degree suspicion that it's malignant. However, BIRADS-4 is an indication for moving forward with a biopsy so that we get a definitive diagnosis. The statistic behind that um, is about 20% chance that what they're seeing is malignant. Um, they do substratify it into 4A, 4B, and 4C, 4C being the most concerning one. Um, but generally speaking, 
uh, BARES 4 translates into the need for a biopsy so that we understand what the pathology is there so we know what to do from that. BIRADS 5 is almost certainly a malignancy. Usually they're seeing a speculated mass. They're seeing a cluster of calcifications that has your classic presentation for malignant calcifications. And with a, again, without question, that would be recommended to have a biopsy done. Um, that goes along with a 95% chance of what they're seeing is malignant. And then a BIRAD-6 is a biopsy-proven malignancy. The reason that you would get an imaging study where you have a biopsy-proven malignancy most commonly would be in a patient who is undergoing neoadjuvant chemotherapy or some sort of neoadjuvant treatment or having had already had the biopsy done proving malignancy and we're trying to get some additional imaging done to better qualifying uh, the the area of malignancy so that we can better uh, and determine what their optimal first treatment would be. A good, an example would be somebody who's had a biopsy done demonstrating a cancer and we want to do an MRI to further evaluate on that. And the, the radiologist will you know obviously give a descriptor of what the malignancy looks like in that because we already know what's malignancy, we'll give it a BIRAD-6 rating. Right. And you know, Dr. Edmondson, on these mammography reports, we also oftentimes will get back something about breast density as well. And I think that concerns a lot of patients too. Do you mind elaborating a little bit on that Absolutely. part of the report? And so similarly to the BIRAD system, they have now developed a classification system for the different levels of density that they're seeing on imaging. And this is a four-class system. Um, it's either A, B, C, or D, or also uh, fatty replaced heterogeneously dense, dense, and extremely dense. There's a lot of discussion nowadays. There's a lot of confusion nowadays on what to do with breast density. Obviously, breast density has always been there. If you look at women undergoing mammogram, 40 to 50% of women will be described as having dense breast tissue. The big controversy came about about 10 years ago, and it started with a case in Connecticut in which a woman developed an interval cancer. An interval cancer is when a palpable lump develops in between mammograms and is shown to be consistent with the malignancy. And so as this patient further looked into her studies, she found that she had dense breast tissue. She was friendly with some people in the Connecticut State Legislature and ultimately had legislation passed in Connecticut that mandated additional imaging looking at breast density. And um, these women in Connecticut are mandated to either have additional ultrasounds or MRIs to further evaluate this breast density. And that's kind of had a snowball effect across the country in various forms. Some states mandate additional imaging. Other states recommend or discuss additional imaging, which is the case here in Rhode Island. Some states mandate that insurance pay for the additional imaging studies. Some do not. And so you see it in a lot of different forms. We are beginning to develop a lot of research looking at breast density and better understanding and what to do with it. Um, as I mentioned before, breast density has always been there and it's not a new thing. It does limit the radiologist's ability to see through their glandular breast tissue, which is what that density represents and limits their ability to see cancers there. And so these additional imaging studies have the potential to identify 
more things and more cancers. And so if you look at the data that's come out of Connecticut over the last 10 years, we do know that they do, these additional imaging studies do find more cancers. The other questions that come up that unfortunately we don't have the answers to yet are whether or not these cancers would have developed to anything of any clinical significance. We also don't know whether or not there's a difference in patient outcome survival or disease-free survival by finding them on these additional studies versus having waited until they became a palpable mass or uh, shown up on mammogram. And so it's led to a lot of discussion on the possibilities of overdiagnosis and overtreatment. It's also leading to a lot more imaging studies and is leading to a lot more cost to the healthcare system. And so we're trying to figure out what to do about that. The other big piece of confusion is that it is incomplete deference to the recommendations that come out of the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, as well as the American Cancer Society, which are both in some way or another recommending less screening imaging. And that's based on statistical data, historical data, looking at the overall benefits of these screening studies. And so it's created a ton of confusion. So as we sort through what are the meanings of these additional findings, the radiologists and, uh, and the surgeons are beginning to develop some strategies and algorithms as to how to help women decide, understand, make a decision on whether or not they should do more than just mammogram. Part of the limiting factor is most of the studies that are out there are based on, still based on two-dimensional mammogram. And in this day and age, most centers have transitioned over to 3D mammography, which is definitely much more sensitive. It has reduced callbacks. We don't have any head-to-head -head studies, randomized controlled trials, looking at 3D mammogram versus ultrasound or MRI to better understand how much better this strategy is on screening. But the radiologists have been working through and utilizing some of the risk stratification models to better understand how to screen women. So some of these risk stratification models include the Gale risk model or the Tyrocusic models that help us to better gauge what is a woman's risk for developing a breast cancer. And the current strategy that has been laid out that I'm aware of that we utilize here is that if a woman's risk factor is less than 15%, then likely just 3D mammography is adequate. If her risk stratification is between 15 to 20% lifetime risk for developing a breast cancer, probably mammogram and ultrasound. If her risk stratification is 20% or more, could benefit from mammogram and MRI. And I think that's where we are for now until we get some better studies and data as far as what to do. But it's, it, as always, it's a discussion between the patient and their physician as to what strategy they're comfortable with, because obviously these additional imaging studies are going to lead to more procedures, potential biopsies, with potential defined outcomes that require surgery or intervention that we don't know whether they truly need. One more question for you, Dr. Edmondson. One thing that, you know, I, I hope that I can do for my patients is to counsel them on their expectations in coming to see someone like yourself, like a breast surgeon, because I think they hear breast surgeon, ah, they're going to operate on me. If someone comes into me, they have a breast lump, I send them to get whatever imaging, they get their biopsies, they go to you. Um, what are you telling them? What is the expectation that I should set up for that patient when they go and see you? So I would say that it in part depends on what they're coming to us for. 
Sometimes it's for a palpable mass, and then that would determine, it would depend on what that palpable mass was. If it was a simple appearing cyst that is asymptomatic, then you can safely observe those. If it's a cyst that's symptomatic and or complex in nature, meaning that has internal septations or nodules on the inside of the cyst, then the expectation would do a biopsy to make sure that there's no abnormal cytology within that cyst. If that palpable lump is a fibroadenoma, which is a very common benign thing that we see women for all the time, um, there's a lot of different strategies that exist for those. One is to, if they're small and asymptomatic, you can observe those. Um, if they are larger and symptomatic, you certainly can surgically excise those. Um, for women who have a lot of fibroadenomas, we don't necessarily recommend that all of them be removed. In addition, at certain institutions, it's possible to do what's referred to as cryoablation, freezing them and killing them off, and ultimately they dissolve and go away. Um, there's a lot of, so I guess the simpler answer to that question is there's a lot of different things. Not everything is operative. We've tried to better quantify what percentage of patients that we see actually go to surgery for whatever the referral base is. Um, I would say probably between 20 to 50% of are the ones that require surgery. Probably 80 to 50, 50 to 80% probably don't require surgery. A lot of things that go on in the breast we get referrals for are non-operative in nature. And so just because they have a palpable finding doesn't necessarily mean that they need surgery. Um, again, it's kind of this giant sandbox full of what could you find. And so it's hard to break down what those expectations would be. It's, it kind of depends on why they're coming in. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Edmondson, for joining us on Creags Over Coffee. Um, I'm certain that our listeners will be very appreciative to learn about these things just like we are today. Um, so once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creags Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is. Give us a five-star rating and review. Find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. And if you want to give us some support, go on to patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. If you make a donation, we'll give you a shout out on the show, access to our exclusive material, or even some swag. If you need notes for this episode, you can find it and notes, frankly, for all of our episodes on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. If you have suggestions for any other episodes, go ahead and email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.